Data infrastructure is advancing beyond the days of Hadoop MapReduce, single-node databases, and nightly reporting. Companies are adopting modern data warehouses, streaming data systems, and cloud-specific data tools like BigQuery. Every company with a large amount of data wants to aggregate that data into a data lake and make the data available to developers. All of this data can be used to power machine learning models, which can potentially improve every area within a company where they have historical data. Data pipeline is a term used to describe the process of preparing data, building machine learning models, deploying those models, and tracking the results of those models. Pachyderm is a company and open source project that is focused on deployment, management, and scalability of data pipelines. Pachyderm allows developers to version data, track the state of data sets, backtest machine learning models, and collaborate on data. It also tackles the very hard problem of machine learning auditability. Joe Doliner is the CEO of Pachyderm, and he returns to the show to discuss his experience building Pachyderm over the last five years. Data infrastructure has changed a lot in five years, and the world has moved in a direction that has benefited Pachyderm, with more infrastructure moving to containers and more data teams advancing beyond a world of just Hadoop MapReduce. In today's show, Joe talks about modern infrastructure, data provenance, and the long-term vision of Pachyderm. Joe Doliner, you are the CEO of Pachyderm. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here again. We last spoke in 2015. How has data infrastructure changed in the last four years? Well, I think more than just data infrastructure changing, the general expectations of data have changed. Like if you think back to 2015, there was really none of this worry about where is my data going? I mean, there were still like data hacks and people would be upset about that, but there wasn't the same level of like firms getting data and then targeting political ads, people like the Equifax breach hadn't happened and things like that. And so for us, it really felt as if people like woke up over the last maybe three to four years and realized that data was this really important thing that was affecting like all the way down to consumer lives and that they needed to have a lot stronger guarantees in place of where their data was going. There was no GDPR then. I think I think the GDPR was like sort of in the process, but now it's actually in effect, things like that. So that's what's changed in terms of what people are asking for for data. In terms of what's changed in, term, in terms of the actual infrastructure, probably the biggest change has just been how much ML is taken off and how much the infrastructure has had to move to support that. So basically every you know, data product that we know about, and we're you know, of course trying to keep tabs on all of them, has been moving toward having the best story possible for machine learning, for th- running things like TensorFlow and PyTorch and Keras and things like that. That seems to be the two major themes that I've seen. Does this apply to startups and enterprises? Because I've talked to plenty of startups who are updating their data infrastructure. They're making their data infrastructure more accessible to data scientists and machine learning engineers. These are companies like DoorDash or Uber or Airbnb. I feel like at the level of the enterprise, many of them are still working on microservices and and on the data side of things it's more about 
they're just trying to get their data under control. They're trying to figure out what is our data lake. They're just trying to make their data available, and they haven't moved on yet to actually getting machine learning models built and deployed. Is that to, to what degree is that accurate? I think it really depends on the company. You know, we talk to companies sort of up and down the like tiny little startup to gigantic enterprise company stack. And we see some small startups whose entire company is based around being able to do something in machine learning really, really well. And so then they're just laser focused on building that competency. We also see some small companies that are like, look, we need to have some data infrastructure, but it's simple stuff. It's like SQL tables. We can just use like Google Big Table or something like that. Wait, not Big Table, BigQuery for something like that. And then on enterprise side, you know, we do see a lot of what you're talking about of companies just saying we need some like, you know, to bring some sense to this chaos. We need to be able to understand our data and be able to see it. But we also see a lot of companies that have, you know, basically this edict from above that's saying like we need to have a 5-year timeline for like how are we going to have machine learning touch every single aspect of our business. And you get very different approaches to that. Like sometimes those types of projects are kind of boondoggle projects where like someone heard the machine learning was cool they want to apply it to their company. And so they're just like, drop a bunch of money on all of these different software stacks to, to try to do something. And then you see some companies where it actually is becoming just like core to what they do. So, you know, I think that this is for e-commerce businesses where like recommendations and understanding user profiles, those are some of the most sophisticated shops I've seen in terms of actually needing to use machine learning to do something. That's one of the things that I think you'll see in any like nascent technology is you've got the people who are really laser focused on actually getting the real value out of it. And then as the hype builds on it, you've got more and more people who just sort of want to dip their foot in the pool because it's cool. And, and sometimes long term, those turn into really interesting projects. But a lot of times they don't really go anywhere. If I am an enterprise, I've got some ETL jobs that are moving data from one place to another. I've got some nightly reporting jobs that are running. How do I need to update my data infrastructure to get from that world to the world where I can have machine learning models? It really depends on what you want to do with those machine learning models. You know, If you just want to have a machine learning model built on one of those, then you can just hire a data scientist, allow him or her to download that data set, and you know, train those models, maybe provide them a box with some GPUs or something like that. And that's often the first step that companies go through. The, the difficulty is that there's a big gap between that and having machine learning models that are getting trained every single night based on new data, are getting deployed to your servers and are becoming like part of your infrastructure and part of whatever your offering is, be it a search engine, e-commerce website, or something like that. And most importantly, having auditability in all of this so that you can say like, oh, we've got this deployed on the site. You know, we got a bunch of fraud today. Let's check the fraud model. Let's check the data that went into it. And so those are sort of the growing pains that we always see companies go through, right? And so it's, it's, it's unfortunately very hard to say, and a, lo a lot of companies ask us exactly that question of like, we need to be doing machine learning. How do we do some machine learning? And we always have to say, well, you know, you can do machine learning on your laptop right now, but that's not actually what you mean by machine learning. So you're going to have to tell us more exactly what it is you mean. Your company, Pachyderm, is built around the data pipeline process. Can you explain what you mean by the, the words data pipeline? 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is a really good thing to clarify because the word pipeline in general in computing has gotten really, really overloaded. So when we talk about data pipelines, we basically mean that there's this swath of data sitting in object storage, generally referred to as the data lake. And it's called the data lake because data is constantly flowing into it and data can be sort of taken out of it as well. And when you have a pipeline, then that means that as data flows into your data lake, it automatically gets processed through some set of steps that you have specified ahead of time and data comes out the other end in some sort of a process form that's going to be useful to you. And that could be, you know, formatted stuff that you can load into BigQuery so that people can do SQL queries on it. That could be a machine learning model that gets pushed onto your website to be served somewhere. And so that's the data pipelining functionality that Pachyderm provides is the ability to do that. The other thing that we sort of provide on top of that, well, below that, we provide the actual data storage, that data lake. But then on top of that, we provide all sorts of auditability where you can see like this individual piece of data flowed in on this day and it flowed all the way through the pipeline and here's what came out the other end. And we have version control of all of this, the input data and the output data. And so you can actually roll back those results to a previous pass result if you don't like that new data that flowed in. You can do reverts and things like that. Your product has evolved over the last four years, and you were able to evolve because there were a number of market trends that you were correct about. Like One big trend that you got right is the need for new data engineering products. You saw that the data engineering product. So four years ago, we were talking about replacing Hadoop, and you were right about that. Hadoop has its issues. Hadoop MapReduce has its issues in terms of how it serves the kinds of applications that we want to build on top of it. So that was one big trend. Another was the shift towards containers for data science. Mm -hmm. Are there any other big trends when you think back over the last four or five years that have really helped you? I think that the other big trends that have helped us are the need for data provenance and auditability. It's been this kind of funny journey for that basic, that feature set and that idea within our product because it started as basically something that we needed to do to get the model to work with version control. It was almost an implementation detail. And then we sort of, as we were looking at it, like, okay, what is the name of this? What, what, would, what would we call this information about where data came from? And we we're like, oh, well, people call this provenance. And actually, this is like a user-facing feature that people were talking about. They were just talking about it like a little bit. Like just some people were interested in that in like 2015 when we first added it. And we thought of it as this feature that was just useful for data scientists to do their jobs, right? Because Anytime you're looking at some sort of a result and you say, oh, this looks a little bit weird or maybe this looks really good, being able to just track that back and reproduce your results is just a core functionality that you want to do any kind of science. After that, there was this whole movement toward users wanting to be able to see where their data come, came from. And then the GDPR actually added like a legal requirement that you're always able to give people an explanation basically for anything that any sort of an algorithmic decision that you make if you're a bank for example making a decision on a loan you need to be able to say this is clean data you know it doesn't it doesn't include your race it doesn't include your gender here's what it includes and so that's one of the big trends that i feel as if we actually got really lucky on. You know, when you talk about the container trend and the data infrastructure trend, that was a very clear, like, I saw that and was like, okay, this is going here and that's where I want to go. With provenance, it was, I was just like, okay, this seems important right now, so we're going to do this. And then we were kind of surprised 
at all of the other stuff that came from that. The other big trend that I think we've managed to latch onto is machine learning. And that's by far we've made the least... We haven't been exactly early to that game, more so than anybody else. I think everybody sort of saw that machine learning and once like neural nets started getting such amazing results that that was going to be the most important data use case for at least the next five years, probably the next 10 years. And so we've basically done everything we can on that to integrate with the best platforms out there. And we, we got sort of lucky with the platforms that we chose. You know, TensorFlow is probably the leader in terms of what people want to use to do machine learning right now. And because that's at Google and Kubernetes is from Google, there's Kubeflow, which is one of the main ways that people are deploying it onto infrastructure right now. And that's something that just works really, really nicely for us because we're all, we already have everything on Kubernetes. And so that's sort of like additional dividends, I think, from having picked the right just deployment and container ecosystem to be working in. Okay, this is great timing because we just did a show about Kubeflow. It's going to be actually going to be published tomorrow, I think. And as I was doing a show about that, I was like, wow, I'm surprised there's not like a Kubeflow company yet. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you accidentally backed into, I mean, I, get, I realize Kubeflow is a nascent product. Maybe it's not a company that you can build a product around, but it certainly sounds like you were in the right place at the right time regarding that project. Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely were. And, you know, we just got to sort of talk to the right people at the right time. You know, we met them at KubeCon. We, I, I remember talking to the Kubeflow guys when, I'm pretty sure they described it as there was half an engineer at Google working on this and a project manager is like, I'm working on this, but it's only half of what I'm doing. I've got this whole other thing. And I actually don't know what the state of Kubeflow internally at Google is right now, but I'm pretty sure based on what I'm seeing outwardly that it's more than half an engineer at this point. And yeah, we, we sort of just backed into that. You know, People started asking us, hey, like, can we run Kubeflow on Pachyderm? And we, you know, it's, it's very easy to do that because everything is running on top of Kubernetes. And we're sort of trying to push the limits of that and make it as ergonomic and just a first-class citizen within Pachyderm as possible, which again is just pretty easy to do because it's all Kubernetes and it's all containers. I want to explain more about what Pachyderm is. So I don't know how well I even understand the product. I haven't used it firsthand. What I know about orchestrating workflows for different data jobs is that people often use a product called Airflow, and you can use Airflow to to pipe together these different tasks that you're doing across your cluster. Can you give some more context for what Pachyderm does and how it compares to a to something like Airflow? Yeah, I'm actually a great guy to answer that question because I was actually working at Airbnb when we yes. open sourced Airflow. That's why it's got air in the name is because it's an Airbnb product. So Airflow is basically just a pipeline scheduler and you specify a directed acyclic graph of data tasks that you want to happen in Python. And those data tasks can be a bunch of different things. I mean, I think you, you, know, you can shell out to stuff, so in theory it can be anything. But the main things that people use it are for are like kicking off ETL jobs, so like running SQL-style queries on Hive or Presto, or data warehouses like Redshift and what's Google, BigQuery ones. It's pretty tuned toward the Hadoop ecosystem because that's all the stuff that we were using at Airbnb at the time. So it interfaces nicely with things with with Presto and Hive, with things like MapReduce you can use in there too, with HDFS, it's like that. 
Pachyderm has basically one half of it that is pretty comparable to Airflow, and that's the Pachyderm pipeline system. And so that's the same thing. It's about scheduling you know, a series of data tasks. Ours isn't as tuned to the Hadoop ecosystem. It's not really tuned to the Hadoop ecosystem at all. We're tuned toward just arbitrary freeform data tasks. So that would be you know, things like OpenCV in a container, things like GATK, which is the uh, genetics toolkit that biologists like to use. Also very tuned toward machine learning pipelines and stuff like that, because you can put TensorFlow in a container, you can put Keras in a container. And because we're scheduling containers on Kubernetes, we give you a very, very easy way to basically pass parameters through to Kubernetes, such as this task needs a GPU attached to it. And then Kubernetes will make sure that it schedules it on a machine with GPU and it has access to that GPU. And then when that task is done, Kubernetes deschedules it and the next guy can use the GPU. So it's sort of managing your, your resources for you. That's half of the Pachyderm product. The other half of the Pachyderm product is the file system. And there's nothing in Airflow like that because Airflow depends on things like HDFS or S3 to be their underlying file system. The Pachyderm file system is a pretty thin layer on top of an object store. We support all of the major, major object stores, so like S3, GCS, Azure Blob Storage. What we add on top of that is version control semantics. So the ability for you to say, here's, here's a repository of data, and I want to commit all of this stuff atomically, and then that's a new commit, and then the next day I'm going to commit some more stuff, but if I want to, I can roll back, right? And I can go back to any of my previous versions, and the reason that we wanted to build both of these components rather than just focusing on one is that they're very, very deeply integrated with each other. So the Pachyderm pipeline system, because it has this underlying version-controlled file system, is able to know at any time what data it's already processed. So when you might have you know, a petabyte of data sitting in the Pachyderm file system, and then you add an extra gigabyte of data, and that's, of course, going to kick off a bunch of pipelines, and they're all going to run and process stuff, but they're going to know that only a gigabyte of that data is fresh. And so they're only going to process that gigabyte. And then you're going to see the results as if you'd process the full petabyte immediately. When I was at Airbnb, we, couldn't, we didn't have any sort of incremental processing like that. And so we would just process everything from scratch, which you know, just means that you're sort of paying for extra compute, which for us at Airbnb wasn't a huge deal. But it also means that you get your results out a lot slower. And so we basically ran things on a daily schedule at Airbnb where... Data would come in during the day, and then that evening at midnight, the pipelines would kick off and everything would run, and the hope was that they'd all be done by 9 a.m. the next morning. In Pachyderm, you can sort of always be running stuff. So if a new piece of data comes in, it kicks off and starts processing it immediately, and then just merges in that tiny little bit of extra data so you're much more up to date. If I'm a data scientist or a machine learning engineer, or for that matter, a software engineer who works at a company where maybe the machine learning engineer just quit and like I have been put in charge of doing this data engineering stuff. I don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Is my experience with Pachyderm, is it on the command line? Is it a GUI? What am I doing to interact with these data pipelines and do things like data provenance? We have both. So there is a command line client that's sort of the first, the first line of defense. And that's for me, that's the thing that I find most comfortable. We also have a GUI that gets deployed with a Pachyderm installation that's actually part of our enterprise product. And so you can go into there and you can do all of the functionality from the command line. You can, you can put data in, you can put, you know, can create pipelines and things like that. Normally, 
in sophisticated deployments, people are using a combination of the GUI for exploratory stuff, programmatic access, so like the Go client or the Python client for the actual like putting of data, and then the command line to just sort of like poke around at things and do like batch operations. Like if I want to, you know, script something and pause every single pipeline or something like that, that might be something nice to do on the command line. That's basically what the experience is. We try to sort of offer all three because we have a very wide set of different users. One of the other things that really sort of discriminates our users into different camps is how comfortable they are with Kubernetes. And we get sort of a full spectrum from people who are Kubernetes experts, know much, much more about Kubernetes than us at Pachyderm. But... And, and so they're totally comfortable with, with using Kubernetes and with just looking like, oh, this pod failed to schedule for this reason, all the way to people who are pure data scientists. They don't, they're not even really that comfortable on the command line, but they definitely don't want to know about like a complicated infrastructure product like Kubernetes. And so for them, we, try to ha we sort of have to offer a much like easier insight into what's going on in Kubernetes in terms that they understand. Because a lot of times, you know, Kubernetes is still a fairly new piece of software and they run into things like, oh, my you know, EBS volume is failing to attach to this node or something like that. Kind of, yeah, you kind of need to be a Kubernetes expert to be able to dive in there and figure it out. And so we have to help people with that a lot. We just did this show about bottoms up versus top down sales process where like get, I don't it sounds like you're, you know, you're you're getting into the enterprise and you're having these enterprise conversations and this bottoms up versus top down thing for for open source software like Pachyderm, one thing I've heard is that you, your route into the company is oftentimes some random developer within the company starts using your tool and then somebody else in the company starts using the tool and they're like, hey, we love this tool. And then over time, the CIO or the CEO finds out about it and they say, cool, like, I guess we should buy this for you. And then so it's like you have a bottoms up sales process. You have developers within that major enterprise, the bank or whatever, saying, we want this thing. The other model is the top down sort of, uh, you know, wine and dine the CIO model of sales. Have you started to think about this spectrum of ways to actually get Pachyderm adopted by developers at enterprises? Yeah, yeah. So we, we think about that spectrum you know, constantly because you're kind of forced to as you have new customer cases coming in. And thus far, the bottom-up approach, I think, comes a lot more naturally to us. Because again, like I said, you know, I come from a background of open source. I'm a developer myself. So like when I, w when a random developer at a big company comes into our support channel, sends us an email or something like that, and says, "I just deployed Pachyderm. I'm doing doing this with it. Here's what I'd like to be doing with it." That's a conversation that I completely understand and that we know how to have. When we have a CIO or someone like that who's poking around, or when we're doing an outbound sale to a CIO or something like that, that's a lot more newer territory for us. For me personally. We of course we've you know hired some people who this is their forte and so they have those conversations now. Thus far, what I've found is that for a, a product like this, you can you can take that top down approach. You can get the CIO totally sold, and you might even close a contract based on that. But you're still not going to get anywhere like long term and get the thing to actually stick if you don't get buy in from the lower levels and. Even having a CIO say like to to his engineers like okay you must write all of this stuff on Pachyderm like this stuff must all be migrated to Pachyderm that even that sort of only gets you so far 
which is sort of like was an eye-opening moment for me when I realized like, oh, you know, engineers, like they're still, even in big companies where like they have all of this structure around them, they're still kind of able to do their own thing. They still have a lot of autonomy. And so if you if you can get them to actually want to build on Pachyderm, then that to me is always the crucial part of the sale that doesn't happen even if, even if you convince the CIO. Now, the other thing that you can run into is that you can have an engineer who's totally invested in Pachyderm and has written everything in Pachyderm, and they have like a production s- deployment that's using Pachyderm or something like that. And if you don't have the correct language to communicate the business value to the CIO, to whatever VPs are above this person, then you run into a huge problem trying to actually close this contract and get money out of them. And Thus far, we've taken the approach that we're much more okay with situations like that than the other way around. You know, if we have a company that is using our product in production and, you know, we can't quite close the deal to actually get them to pay for support or get them to pay for the enterprise product, then that's fine right now. We're, we're fine with having our open source product be our biggest competitor. And, you know, we often, like every company, you know, we're, we're worried about churn. And we, a lot of the churn that we do experience is people churning out of enterprise contracts and into the open source, which is way, way better than just churning, churning, right? Because someone who's using uh, the open source product for a young product like ours, that's helpful no matter what. You know, they're giving us feedback, they're filing bugs, and they're sort of adding this legitimacy to it, right? Like those are the people who write blog posts about it. Those are the people that we can point to in references and things like that. So that's sort of the way that we approach that. And it's, it's totally a learning process, you know, to figure out how to actually close sales and stuff like that. Something that wasn't in my background at all. My co-founder is, has that a lot more in his background. Hmm, nice. Well, also it's a nascent market. I mean, clearly this is something that people want, which is what must be exciting about it. But it's also very nascent, as as we've already kind of discussed. It's, it's very nascent. And I think one of the things that people don't realize about how nascent it is, is that probably more than 50% of the data projects that we see that people are interested in using Pachyderm for fail. And, you know, sometimes that has to do with Pachyderm bugs. But most of the time, that just has to do with what they were trying to do with their data was too ambitious, not really workable with modern techniques. And one of the biggest stumbling blocks like, is... Well, what's an example? A project that failed. Yeah. Because it was too ambitious. So the most common common case for this is somebody... We, we have tons of people that come into us and they say, like, we want to build sort of the platform that's going to power data science for our organization for the next five years. Something like this. And they have this whole grand vision of yes. like, okay, here's what the interface is going to look like. Here's where the data is going to be stored. Yes. Here's how people are going to be able to access it and everything like that. And invariably, you know, they realize that what they're... Eventually, they realize that what they're doing is really an entire product unto itself but they're trying to build it within a company targeted at the specific needs of the company, and they just don't understand how big of an undertaking it is. You know, this is in a lot of ways what Pachyderm is. And you know, this has been a company working on this for five years, and that's all we're focusing on. You know, we don't have the constraints of another bigger company around us. We also don't have the resources of like a Fortune 500 company. But we still only satisfy, you know, a subset of the use cases. We're not the system to rule them all. And the reality, I think, is that the system to rule them all, you know, really doesn't exist. Like, even if you look inside of Google, that's by far the most sophisticated 
deploy any type of like data company you're going to find like mm-hmm. all of these techniques like MapReduce distributed file systems those right. all just come out of google papers from 15 right, right, years right. ago they still don't have the system to rule them all right they're constantly coming up with new systems that are good at different things they've got this like fragmented mess that works because well they've got a bunch of really really good engineers and they do have good infrastructure there but when you see you know your some fortune 500 company that isn't really a tech company is sort of reinventing themselves as a tech company over the last 20 years. And you're going to build this infrastructure to rule them all that Google has been unable to build. Like that's just never going to happen. And so a lot of times what we have to do in conversations like that is like, we have to sort of get people to think smaller and think one step at a time and, and say to them, like when somebody comes in and says they want to build something like that and they want to use Pachyderm to do it, we normally try to push them and say, okay, let's find one use case you know, let's show that this can work on one use case. And then let's show that we can expand it to, you know, a handful of use cases. And then maybe we can, we can start looking at all of them. And, you know, we can talk about those other use cases so that we make sure that we're not just like cutting those off with some architecture decision that we make right now. But when the criteria for success is like the platform to rule them all, then that's almost always going to fail in my experience. Okay, so there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. The data platform question is one that I have been fascinated by for the last couple of years. And you're suggesting that if the world follows the Google model, it will not be this big, thick one tool to rule them all. It'll be some set of loosely coupled components. You've got Kubernetes over here. You've got BigQuery over here. You've got MapReduce over here. You've got uh, Apache Beam over here. And you're doing Mm -hmm. all these different things. You're plugging them together however you want to. And maybe you're using something like Airflow or whatever the Google, what is it, Dataflow thing? Dataflow is Not Dataflow. Dataflow is, well, Dataflow in the Google context is like, that's like their Beam thing, right? But they have some kind of scheduler that's like Airflow, right? Data sequentializer, whatever whatever it is. They have something like that, although I know... So one of the use cases that we're getting looked at for right now is basically an ETL engine on top of BigQuery. Mm. And that basically just be using Pachyderm pipelines. You wouldn't be storing any data in Pachyderm. You're just using containers to fire off like container boots up and it sends a little SQL to BigQuery and then it goes away. And the company that we're talking to about this, you know, we told them like, you know, this'll, this'll work. It's a container. You can run whatever you want in it. It's not really meant for this exactly. Like this is the type of thing that I would expect BigQuery to have built into it. And so my understanding is that actually the data, like data pipeline scheduler within Google's cloud is kind of, is a bit of a missing piece right now. I think that like data flow will work for like that very specific like use case. But if you want just a general thing within there, I don't, I don't think that that actually does exist. Okay. Well, anyway, the, the point I was trying to get to, cause I want to get to, I want to get to data provenance and versioning eventually. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting subject, but just a little bit more on this data platform side of things. Google is not necessarily like the rest of the world. I mean, maybe Google infrastructure for everyone is coming, but there are these com- like a company like Dremio. Like I find Dremio really interesting. You know Dremio? Have you looked at them at all? I don't think so. It was originally based on the Google Dremel paper. Okay. Uh, it's guys that came out of MapR. One of the early engineers was a guy who I think 
created Parquet. So you've got Parquet and and Tomer from from MapR, who's done a done a ton of. Uh, he did. He was at MapR for like five years. I mean, learned everything about data infrastructure. He's like, okay, I understand how companies are managing things on the first generation cloud data platforms. Cloudera, MapR, Hortonworks. Like that's kind of where we're evolving from. Well, in, in terms of like selling to the enterprise, like these companies have have been working with MapR. They were been working with Cloudera. Now there's a huge world of other data companies that are kind of coming and I don't know, maybe from your point of view, disaggregating the the big Cloudera installations or just, you know, there's plenty of companies who never even in- integrated with a Cloudera and now they're becoming enterprise software companies or, you know, you've got John Deere becoming a, a software company that self- sells factory equipment, for example. Just to get to my point, so do you have a sense, like, uh, it, will there be some thick data platform things that are useful because you take a company like uber uber is in many ways like google but in some ways not like google uber has a data platform they have a fairly well-developed data platform that is kind of a one tool to rule them all one data platform to rule them all so are is is it the case where there are some enterprises where maybe you do want a one data platform to rule them all and there's other enterprises where you want disaggregated sets of tools that's a very interesting question. I mean, I'm not specifically familiar with Uber's data platform. I was pretty familiar with Airbnbs. We spoke to them. I would expect if we looked into the details of that, what you would find is that it is one platform in terms of like, this is the Uber platform. But then if you look at it, it's composed of a bunch of different sort of off-the-shelf patterns, off-the-shelf products or open source technologies. And there's a lot of different access patterns in there. And I think that that's sort of the reason why things are never going to be quite as unified as you want, right? Because you're going to have something like Dremel, which is, you know, a very, very fast access pattern for like columnar data, as I understand it, right? And that is amazing for some use cases. And for other use cases, it just doesn't apply at all. You know, like there's no way to apply that to video processing. There's no way to apply that for Uber's self-driving car stuff, which is images and things like that, without a whole bunch of processing to turn that into some sort of a columnar format that that people understand. So I think that the kind of octopus nature of data infrastructure and stuff like that is almost inevitable because of the sort of fragmented nature of data itself. Like really, really the trick here is that we have this word data that is just one word, but can encompass so many different types of things. And so that allows us to say like, well, a data platform, you know, we have all of the things that are called data. Why don't we have the platform that can handle all of the things that are called data? And that just obfuscates some of the details of what data actually looks like and how, you know, when you get into those details, everybody needs a slightly different access pattern on that. That being said, I think there are aspects of this that you can make generic. And that's sort of the things that we try to keep ourselves targeted on at Pachyderm, right? So all of these different data formats can sort of be represented as some like really vast swath of bytes, right? So like these parquet files are normally stored in HDFS as like a multi terabyte file or something like that, right? And when you can do that, you know, you can also, if you can also store like a billion images as little files or something like that, like that can be a pretty generic interface. It still doesn't give you a generic access pattern, right? And so that's why we sort of try to get as close to a generic access pattern as possible by saying, well, our access pattern is 
we give you a process in a container or we give you, you know, multiple processes running in multiple containers. And so that's as open-ended as we can make this so that people can run whatever code they want in there and then interface with other things. And this still, you know, works really cleanly for some subset of use cases. And then for other use cases, you can do them like you can spin up a Dremel cluster or spin up a Spark cluster and then access it from within your container. But now you're kind of managing two clusters, right? It's not really just Pachyderm or something like that. And it gets a little bit less nice. So I think that if there is a route to complete unification, it's going to be through some sort of a generic scheduler like Kubernetes that can basically run all of these primitives on top of the commute, compute in sort of the same type of environment. But... To be honest, I don't, I don't think that that's going to congeal within the next five years, maybe within the next 10. I mean, there's just, there's just too many sort of platforms like, you know, you can't run Redshift in Kubernetes. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are, you, you could, in theory, if Amazon wanted to make right. you able to, but right, they don't. Right. And there's a lot of special purpose things on Google's cloud and things like that. Yeah. The different clouds actually, I think, are a, an interesting both source and sync of fragmentation like this. Mm. Like you sort of get, for new technologies, you get this fragmentation, right? So when containers came out, you had ECS, which is Elastic Container Scheduler. You had ACS, which was Azure Container Scheduler. And you had GKE, which was Google Container Engine with a K instead of a C because it was actually Kubernetes under the hood, right? And now you have EKS, which I believe also stands for Elastic Container Scheduler, but it's a K to indicate that this is the Kubernetes version of the Container Scheduler. And you have AKS, which is the Azure equivalent. And so you sort of, you, you saw like a full cycle over about three years of containers come out, container schedulers fragment, Kubernetes wins, container schedulers defragment, but they're still not totally defragmented. Yeah, like there's still just a bunch of different ones and there's still like EKS, AKS, GKE. You know, we have deployments on all of them. We've worked with customers to get those deployments working on all of them. It's always slightly a little bit different. You know, it's close enough that the, the dream does work. You know, we do have a product that we basically maintain with for all of these platforms and probably 99% of the code that gets written, you don't have to care about which platform it's running on. So it's just that little 1% that you have to deal with. But this is container schedulers, which were like the hottest, most important field where like, you know, inside of every single one of these clouds, they, they had their boss saying, whoever was in charge, like containers, guys, containers need to work. What's our story for containers? And so that's how they were able to ship the container scheduler. And then the new container scheduler, when they realized the old container scheduler wasn't what the market wanted. But for data, you don't have anywhere near that level of pressure, right? People know that data is important. People know that machine learning is important. But there isn't as clear of a waypoint for people to say, like, ah, yes, Kubernetes. This is the API that people want. If we support this API, like, people will be able to use off-the-shelf products on our, on our cloud. Like, things will be good. And so there's a lot more fragmentation. You know, there's a lot more of companies, like, saying, like, oh, well, maybe we want to make something like SageMaker, you know, SageMaker is sort of a very automated, like it applies a bunch of different machine learning algorithms to something It tells you which one is best. It's kind of like a machine learning consultant in the cloud is maybe a way to phrase it that, you know, that's one viable hypothesis for what people want out of this market. And so as long as there's enough sort of viable hypotheses, you're going to see this fragmentation at the cloud level. 
we sort of have a thesis on, on this ourselves, as I said, of like, you want to sort of have a data aware scheduler that gives people a very, very generic way to specify what their data operations actually are. For us, the next step of this is sort of bringing it onto the cloud. And so with the Series A that we just raised over the next year, what we're building out is a site called PackHub, which is basically like the, if, if you think of Pachyderm as like Git for data, then PackHub is like GitHub for data. So it's sort of an online hub that will connect both a large Pachyderm instance that we're running and individual Pachyderm instances that other people are running in their clouds and allow you to sort of push and pull pipelines and publish pipelines that you're using to do data science, push and pull data and see results and things like that and connect sort of the users on top of that. So, you know, you can come in to your office and you've been working on PackHub for the last, you know, five years while you're in school and they'll say, okay, we're giving you access to our PackHub org and now you can see all the pipelines that they have running and, and all of the data and everything like that. And it's a unified interface for this. But, you know, it's a long road toward people being able to do all of the different things that they want to do with data on PackHub. Why hasn't that been built before? There have been lots and lots of companies that were building GitHub for data science yes. or GitHub for data. And so it has been built before in that sense. You can go and look at those things and none of them have really taken off because in my opinion, they didn't really deliver on the promise of what that could be. And so this was one of the very, very early theses for our company of we, we always wanted to build something like that. And we consider just diving in straight ahead and building like, all right, let's build a website, let's build this portal, let's build something like that. And what we realized is like, okay, there's a lot of other people doing this and they don't seem to be succeeding that well. Why do we think that is? And the reason that we came up with is that you can't build GitHub until Git exists, right? Git had to be written, and, and Git is just sort of this like miracle nice thing that Linus Torvalds decided to write for us. And it's this amazing version control and it system. it accidentally became a social network. Right, and it accidentally became a social network. It accidentally became the de facto way that people do open source development and, and a lot of other kinds of development. And of course, even when they're not using GitHub, I think the main thing they're using is GitLab, which is you know just another take on, like, on Git as this. I don't think there's... Much, I mean, I, I still hear about Mer Mercurial and stuff like that once in a while. I haven't heard about Darks in a while, which was the Haskell version <laughs> control know system. What that is <laughs> Darks. I'm I, I'm a big Haskell nerd, uh, or at least I, I was. I can't really legitimately say I'm anymore. And so Darks is this kind of cool version control system written in Haskell that has this really fatal flaw where every once in a while it tries to solve an NP complete problem on your commit graph, and so that just takes like days. <laughs> So, you know, th there's, there's some issues there. But we, we sort of looked at all of these other, like, GitHub for data attempts and realized, like, these guys are kind of building UIs on top of the same existing tools that we feel aren't really solving the problem. We don't see anybody who's really willing to, like, grapple with the hard problem of what does the underlying infrastructure that the UI is depending on have to actually do to facilitate, like, data collaboration between, you know, eventually the world. You know, it's not every person in the world is not going to be using this product because there's a, a lot of people who just have no interest in writing code that processes data. But among the data processing world, that's still like millions of people. 
And so you need really, really high-powered underlying infrastructure that can version control large data sets that can do distributed processing on that. Incremental processing becomes like hugely important on that because like you're going to have all of these different workloads of like the guy who's updating his code like every five minutes as he processes it versus the guy who has written his code once and it's correct and he deployed it, but new data is coming in every five seconds and that needs to be processed. And so you need very, very sophisticated underlying distributed systems primitives to make this system actually work. Right. And I mean, that's the reason that people use GitHub is because did you did you ever use like SVN or sort of the predecessor systems? Oh, yeah. I've, I've entered SVN into the command line before. I was really confused. Right. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, the, the feature of Git is certainly not that it doesn't confuse you. Right. But the feature of Git is that it's it's a workhorse. You know, like when you tell it, like, pull this stuff, it might take it a while, but it's going to like, it's going to pull all of it. Like it's going to do all of the, you know, it, it seldom, I've never seen Git break on me for reasons that I didn't feel like were my fault. Oh yeah. It's its fault for confusing me. Right. You know, the, the, you, the, the user experience on that is, you know, what you expect when Linus Torvalds writes a system for Linus Torvalds to use. Right. But it's never just flat out broken on me. And that's a lot of the problem that I think that, that I saw plaguing in data infrastructure just at a single company level at Airbnb. And so if a single company can't maintain data infrastructure for just the people within their company to use, how is a company going to maintain data infrastructure for the broader public to use when they can do whatever they want on it and all sorts of crazy things can happen and the scale is that much larger? So, you know, we felt like we needed and this was what i was excited about in founding this company was there's a lot of really interesting hard systems problems to be solved here and those are the problems that i have a background in those are the things that i really like to solve so i wanted to pick a company to found that was where we're focusing on those problems actually made sense because i knew there was a huge risk if i founded a company where actually the correct answer and the correct product was like this should be a website first and then you'll figure out the back-ended infrastructure later then there was a good chance that i was just going to focus on the infrastructure because that's what i'm interested in i'd completely do a terrible job with the company so i tried to pick a place where my instincts were going to lead me in approximately the right direction and the giant market you got the giant market you got the self-aware you know playing to your flaws as well as your strengths Okay, we've been talking in like the meta realm for basically 52 minutes and we have like 10 minutes left, which is great. Like people love the meta realm, by the way. And we definitely have to have you, I want to have you back as a guest like much, much sooner because this is like- I'd love to. Yeah, it would be great. But let's talk a little bit about data providence, auditability. Mm -hmm. This is not stuff we've done a show on. It's definitely something we should do a show on. Frankly, it sounds- really intimidating like if i'm a bank and i have a machine learning model that's issuing a loan and i don't know how that model has been trained i don't know exactly what data sets it's been trained on and then the model is getting versioned over time there's different versions that are getting served to different people i might have a b testing going on i've got this insane tree of past decisions and then if i get served with a lawsuit from somebody who says i got discriminated against on november 15th at 2 p.m when i applied for a loan and i'm like oh my god i have no way 
to know which version of the model was deployed then. I don't know which one was A-B testing then. I don't know, like, what, do I have to get their IP address and then, like, map that IP address to it? So you have all these issues around auditability that are becoming more and more relevant. And as in, like, the loan, the loan example is almost a trivial example compared to what we're going to be dealing with in the next couple decades when you get into, like, healthcare and, like, real-time things that are going to, like, hurt people and, like, hurt people in real time, kill people in real time, when you're going to be like, what line of code was to blame for that? And you're like, oh, it was the machine learning model that made a judgment, and we have no idea, like, why it made that judgment. So with all that said, I don't know, take me into the, the shallow end <laughs> of, of the rabbit hole that is Joe Doliner's opinion on machine learning auditability. Yeah. So obviously this is something that, you know, we deal with every day and is a big part of our value proposition. So I, my thoughts on it have sort of been developed by that position that we're in. And we try not to spin too much FUD for companies. You know, we always try to give them as realistic a an impression as we can of what what do you actually need to do you know what is what is going to be expected of you this stuff the tricky thing though is that since the gdpr passed we really don't know you know all that that whole scenario that you described of like someone comes in and says like show me what's happened on this loan or something like that that is all laid out in the law as something that can happen we haven't seen course seen cases go through the courts Right, and of course, you're talking about a bunch of different courts, like the GDPR passed in the EU, for the EU. But when this gets tried, I'm pretty sure it's going to be tried in you know an English court, in a French court, in a Portuguese court, things like that. And so you're going to see completely different results on all of this stuff. And so the thing that we always try to tell people is like, look, you need a system that just tracks everything, right? And you need a system where the tracking isn't something that your data scientists do as part of their code because these sort of existing systems like this is something like Apache Nifi. That's really the only other one that we know of that's like their whole thing is provenance and that's like an Apache project. I'm not even sure if there's a company behind it yet. There will be eventually. Every Apache project eventually becomes a company. Not Zookeeper. That's true. Not Zookeeper. It's it's every every new Apache project that wasn't founded before Cloudera and Hortonworks, I think, okay. eventually becomes a, a a company. The ones that were around before just sort of got rolled out, rolled up into right. Cloudera and well, Hortonworks. Well, Zookeeper powers all the companies, right? And this was actually this was I, I probably mentioned this on the last podcast. How like that is really like the perfect example of the biggest systematic problem with the Hadoop ecosystem. That Zookeeper powers all of this, and there's no company behind Zookeeper. And so when we would have out at Airbnb, so many of them would be caused by Zookeeper. And we'd be like, can somebody fix this bug with Zookeeper? It's like, well, why would we do that? That just makes their product better too. You know, Zookeeper isn't our thing. Unfortunately for you, arguably now that is Etcd's responsibility, which is uh, CoreOS's responsibility. Which is IBM's responsibility. Which is IBM's <laughs> responsibility, who you just dissed. Yeah, there is there is that thing. I mean, I think, I think that Etcd... The thing that we have going for us on this, though, is that etcd also powers Kubernetes. So if etcd really has fatal flaws in it that are preventing it from servicing like big workloads, it's probably going to bite the biggest Kubernetes installations before it bites the biggest Pachyderm installations. And I think Google's going to have some motivation to get that fixed. My understanding is that etcd is kind of now in its own foundation spun off. Like If you go to the GitHub project, it's not under CoreOS, Red Hat, or IBM anymore. It's its own thing. Anyways, this is a risk. This is, <laughs> this is a real risk. 
let's let's get back to Providence. So, like I said, we we try not to sort of spin too much fud for people, but the thing that that we pitch them on about Pachyderm is that this is a system where provenance isn't something you do, it's something that just happens. So when you're you know, naturally using Pachyderm, there's no way to turn off the provenance features. There's no way to forget to record the provenance of this piece of data. When you process a piece of data in Pachyderm, it always has all the provenance attached to it of every single line of code that ran for this and every single piece of data that went into it. And so if you want to, you, know, you can just sort of click a button and say like, let's recreate this process. And you, know, you can drop in there and see the logs coming out and actually debug it and things like that. And you, you can play with the results as they come out and see if they're the same. And so, you know, this is sort of the the system for the people who are paranoid about this stuff. We want them to feel safe when they, they use this, that there's really no way that you can use Pachyderm and not have complete auditability of the data comes out, as long as things stay within Pachyderm. Where this starts to break down is when people sort of start to mix Pachyderm with other stuff, which of course there's always a reason to do because we don't we don't support all paradigms yet. We're we're trying to sort of support as many of them, but sometimes you know you want to have the distributed model of Spark or something like that, and so people will check data out of Pachyderm and then process it in Spark and then sort of check it back into Pachyderm, and then you know we can say, look, you know, this works totally fine. You're just taking out a tiny bit of reliability and that we can't say 100% how this was processed, right? Like we can't recreate this processing if you did it manually yourself. Similarly, sometimes people will have like a large swath of data that's sitting in some distributed file system that they have, like Ceph or something like that. And they like, they're like, well, we don't want to ingress all of this into Pachyderm before we can start processing it at all. So could we have, you know, our storage and our pipelines basically have a pointer to it. And they just say like, okay, this data is over here in Ceph. And when we want to process it, we know how to download it from Ceph. And then we write it back out to Ceph, or maybe we write it into Pachyderm, but we sort of record this pointer. And we always tell people that that's, that's totally fine, that's going to work. The only risk that you're taking on is that we can't guarantee that the data hasn't changed in Ceph, right? It's just a dumb pointer where we know this data is here somewhere and we'll tell you about it. And if it suddenly changes, then when you go to audit it, it'll have changed. This is going to be an amazing business because you're going to be like one of the categories like distributed tracing or log management where every company is going to need this and there's going to be reams and reams of data in this system. That's that's how we feel and you know it's designed it's designed to be sort of snowbally if you like meaning that like it roll, sort of rolls down the hill and gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you, you mean put the company more, the product the, specifically the product like the file system and the data the data infrastructure and stuff like that cuz like you put some data into it and then you know you process some stuff and then you have traceability with that and then you want it to go somewhere else and it's like well if we don't put it within the same system we won't have traceability and so you know we want people to be able to use this as sort of the base layer for all of their data processing storage and data science so that they always have just this clean problem line from ingress to egress of, of where it went out into the outside world. And yeah, we think it's going to be an amazing business. That's why we're doing it. <laughs> amazing. Okay. We're almost at time. So now that I've, you know, shined my, my praises on the company and you just raised, you know, the 10, the $10 million series a, which is amazing series a after like four years of running the company or five years. I mean, what I like is I get a sense that there was a lot of persistence that was required to get to this point and a lot of long-term thinking because now I think you're you're probably in a point where you're 
not like out of the you know chasm of despair completely in terms of like product building, but like you're certainly beyond a certain chasm that you were in before. Yeah. Do you have any reflections on like because most companies don't? I mean, in in the valley over the last four or five years, it's not a four year timeline to a Series A. It's like you work for a year and a half and then you're acquired or you die or you raise a Series A. And yeah. Yeah. That is like the, I think, more standard timeline. I think that gets a little bit skewed by how things get reported. Okay. And things like that. All right. We, we raised our Series A as part of YC, YC's like Series A program, which is basically like traditional YC, except at the end you raise a Series A instead of a seed round. And we were one of the older companies in there, but not the oldest. There were a couple of companies that mm. had been around longer than us. And I think wound up raising Series A's as well. But you're absolutely right that it did require a lot of persistence and we're on the longer end. And you know, I think that part of that is that people often pick business models, or at least I, I think that I think that people do, and I felt myself being at risk of this and avoided it, of picking a business model that is designed to be able to grow really, really fast in the short term, but then when you get to like the series B, like that type of range, it just totally peters out because there isn't actually like a long-term viable business there. So I think a great example of this that I've seen that's kind of in our space is logging companies. Basically companies that will like give you an endpoint to send your logs to and be like searchable for it. I keep seeing companies getting founded around that premise. And I think that a lot of the reason is that, you know, you log, storing logs is a big problem. It's often a pretty expensive problem. It's annoying to run like the ELK stack and stuff like that. And so what I would assume is that you can always like when you get a system like this and you're willing to sort of like subsidize people's log storage and search and stuff like that, you can get enough people to come onto that system that you can show the metrics that you need to raise a series A under the promise of like, well, we're going to have everybody on this log system and stuff like that. And, you know, it. I, I haven't seen any really like logging companies like quite work out like that. I mean, I think like like Splunk is the most successful one, and they're like what ten years old now. Well, I mean, the advantage on the on the the logging side of things is logging is a deep and subjective problem to solve, and there's so much depth to it that it might be a category unto itself. Like you know, we look at the cloud provider market today, like it's a giant market, but obviously in ten years it's going to look way, way, way bigger. Log management might be the same thing. So the companies that are getting started today, they might just be like, you know, I've been doing log management. I've tried Splunk. I've tried Datadog. I've tried New Relic. And like either these things are doing too much or they're doing too little or they're not doing distributed tracing or they're not doing like machine learning insights. And it's like, I have a new take on logging and I think it can get me to Series B. And it also happens to be a business that can get me some quicker dopamine hits. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that one, you know, I, I won't comment on this, like, I won't commit to anything until I really see how this, this, this market shapes up. You know, there's still all these logging companies and like, maybe one of them is going to turn out to be really, really successful. But when I look at a business like that, to me, I just can't quite make the argument of like, what is the long term, like, really, really valuable thing that we're making that nobody else is going to be able to make. Right. And so I wanted to focus on a business where I felt like, you know, this is, this is something that needs to be made and people are trying to make it and they're failing at it. And not in terms of like the machine learning insights aren't quite good enough or like, you know, it doesn't work as well for this use case of just like, 
it just keeps breaking and people aren't accomplishing what they need from it on a very, very basic level. And so I wanted to focus on something that I felt like could be a very, very long-term, like, successful, really open source project was the first thing I wanted to focus on. You know, when I sort of was thinking to myself, like, okay, if I start working on like the best logging solution in the world right now, can I imagine that like, we're going to have this successful open source project 10 years from now, that's like the logging thing that everybody uses? Like, probably not. I think that a last, like the ELK stack is like, probably going to incrementally improve. And like, that's going to be the way that people do it. Most part, and you're going to get additions on top of that, things like that, versus you know, the data platform that everybody can use to run and process their data and have provenance and stuff like that, that seemed like something that didn't really exist at all. And so I wanted to focus on seeing if I could actually bring something like that to market and have that be something that could really, you know, be long-term successful and stand the test of time. And a lot of the reason that the Series A took so long to raise and putting the company in a position where it could do it took so long is that we there's a ton of technical work that needed to be done there. So we needed to, you know, build out all of this actual infrastructure to have, you know, and it's still sort of in a, certainly not a prototype state, but it's not in its final state either. You know, it's, it's in a state where it's useful to people for some subset of the use cases we want to ultimately target. But it also took time for the market to develop around it, for people to realize that, you know, when, when we were first going out to raise our seed round, a lot of the people who said no to us said no because they're like, I just don't believe that anything can ever beat Hadoop. I think that Hadoop is like the end-all be-all. And that was even, that was an objection as recently as like three years ago. And, you know, it felt like all of a sudden things just switched. People were like, okay, Hadoop is old news. Like we're interested in something new now. Like we feel like, we feel like that ecosystem is vulnerable. I think actually the Horton works Cloudera merger might have helped a lot with that, at least in terms of like the VC world, because it sort of showed like, okay, we are very much in the consolidation phase of this network or of this market. You know, we're not necessarily in the like huge high, like explosive growth phase. Like they're still going to grow on things. But when the two sort of major competitors decide to call it quits and stop like competing with each other to win the market and just like, you know, mend bridges and try to get as much value out of it as possible. Like that's a signal of something. So it took some time for the market to develop. And it also just took some time for us to find, you know, the right, the right sort of investor for us to work with. You know, we weren't in a huge hurry to just get, get money in the door for getting money in the door. You know, we basically for the last two years before we raised the series A, you know, we had a, a small but effective development team. We had a core set of users that we were working with and we were getting enough money from them to mostly fund the business. You know, we got a little bit of help from our seed investors sort of kicking in some more money midway through that, that period. But most of it was just, you know, climbing, climbing the mountain doing doing the hard work with our customers and keeping the company afloat during that because and I really I felt like that sort of pushed the company to get good at a number of things that we wouldn't have gotten good at otherwise you know I think that if we'd just been able to raise a series A after like 2 years and been on this sort of like high flying trajectory we wouldn't have learned what it actually takes to close a sale and how much it hurts to have someone churn out things like that cuz we would have just been like all right whatever like we'll just raise the next round like let's hire some people like let's do some stuff like that so Startups take different paths. All we know is the one that we're on. But so far, I'm pretty happy with it. I think you're in a great spot. I wish we could talk more, but I got to get going because there's another interview. We'll do this again soon. Joe, Joe, it's been really fun talking to you. You too, man. Okay. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Wow.